Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Daniel Foch, and I am I'm kind of joined here by Nick Hill. What's going on today, Nick? Yeah, I mean, I'm here. I'm here for now, but uh, you know, I'm 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 kind of passing the baton to one of our podfathers here for I believe part two of a of a two part series that you and, and Simone had going on. Tell us a bit about that, Dan, and maybe introduce what you guys are talking about and why people should come and listen to this side of the show. Yeah, so I recorded an episode with Simone from the Canadian Investor Podcast, who are our podfathers. We're on their network, and uh, we it was released yesterday, which is Thursday, July 13th, and it's a two-parter. Uh, we just kind of wanted to try something new, see if we could you know, cross-pollinate a little bit of traffic between shows, and we also you know, each have very unique views towards what's happening in commercial real estate right now. So Simone really approaches it from pension fund perspective, from the investing perspective, from the REIT perspective, whereas you know I really look at it from the more direct investing and, and boots on the ground perspective of what we're seeing in the market. So it's you know you'll get from this episode a, a really good contrast of what we each think is going to happen, how the debt world is going to impact it. You know, you're hearing a lot of ominous headlines from the states about Banks uh, defaulting on massive office property loans, or, or mm-hmm. large uh, large landlords defaulting on ma- massive office property loans. So um, there's a lot for people to get uh, their head wrapped around. And I think as we're sort of kind of rolling over this end of the credit cycle that we're seeing in Canadian real estate, it's important to really get an idea. And 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 the big reason, and then I'll let you jump in here, Nick, is I think that there's a, a really cool investment thesis to be found within each individual asset class. And I think that it's really evolved into this cool betting opportunity between, you know, and I think it's on a 20 year horizon, some are really going to outperform and some are really going to underperform. And so I like to be part of starting the exploration of that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I mean, look, this is, it feels weird because this, I usually know what's happening with our episodes, but I don't. I haven't even heard this one yet, so I'll be tuning in just like the rest of our lovely audience to hear it for the first time. And I'll tell you, when two of the smartest guys I know, you and Simone, get together and talk real estate, um, I'm tuning in for sure. So, uh, yeah, enjoy this episode. You, you, this is the last you'll hear of my voice on this one. So if you miss me, don't worry. I'll be back next one for some regular scheduled programming. But stick around. Uh, Dan and uh, Simone have, have some really great insights here. Yeah, we'll jump off now. And then before we go, I know a lot of people want to know our perspective on what the Bank of Canada just did. Uh, we have an episode coming out next week for that one. So stay tuned for sure. Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. I don't know what number this episode is because it's a special one and we're not exactly sure where we're going to insert it in the repertoire. But I'm joined here by a equally handsome, equally well-spoken host uh, as my friend Nick Hill here, uh, one of our podfathers from the Canadian Investor podcast. How's it going, man? Oh, it's going well. Excited to do uh, this part two of the of our com- commercial real estate discussion. And you want to explain to people how we're doing this? Yeah. Yeah, so this is part two of a of a two part episode where basically we're trying to exhaustively explore commercial real estate and its impact in kind of the macro, but also the the entire discussion from public markets to private markets. So in Canada, you know, the the conversation is kind of important because office is a big bet, and we have a lot of pension fund exposure. A lot of people are like, oh, like well, you know, I'll, I'll never have billions of dollars to own an office tower, um, but you likely have exposure to a pension, um, which you have a lot of experience in, and I think you're going yeah. to chat a little mm-hmm. bit about. But um, something like 43% of, of, of women have a pension and, and 36.5% of men have a pension outside of uh, CPP. And so we all do have, or, or a good portion of us do have some exposure to these larger scale asset classes and and should potentially care about this discussion, right? 
Yeah, exactly. So in the previous episode, we touched on, you know, some of the largest pension plans in Canada, the exposure they have, including CPP, QPP, OMERS and teachers. And what you mentioned, I think it's important just for people to understand because they hear pension plan. They think, okay, it's probably something like CPP that's employer sponsored. Well, not all pension plans are the same. So CPP is a defined benefit pension plan where you essentially have criteria, you accumulate uh, a benefit over time and then the CPP or I guess indirectly the government of Canada makes you a promise to pay you a certain amount uh, when you start drawing on CPP and defined benefits pension plan work like this so it's essentially a promise from your employer or the plan sponsor to pay you a certain amount oftentimes for life sometimes it's indexed inflation sometimes it's indexed conditionally so they will index it if there's certain set of conditions that happen or sometimes depending on their actual returns. Um, So that's a promise of the plan sponsor, the employer to pay that when people retire. It's typically what people will think about when they think about a pension plan. But more and more, we've seen that in the US, but also now in Canada, there's also defined contribution pension plans where the real estate exposure may not be as high as uh, CPP, QPP, for example, just because defined contribution, essentially your employer will match contributions that you make to the pension plan. It's put into an account with your name on it. There is a series of you know 10 to 15, for the most part, funds or institutional grade funds, but they're very similar oftentimes to ETFs that you can find or typically publicly traded companies. So clearly for people who have that kind of pension fund, um, there's going to be less of real estate exposure. It's going to be most likely public, publicly traded real estate or REITs that they'll have exposure to. So I just wanted to uh, just clarify because that will vary uh, depending on the type of pension people will have. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and I think it's interesting because that's kind of becoming a little bit reflected in purchasing that we're seeing in in Canadian real estate. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna first of all I would recommend that anybody who who likes what was just said and, and is really interested and intrigued by Simone's expertise around this stuff to to check out TCI the Canadian Investor Podcast our Podfathers and and part one of the show. Uh, which is on their on their um, stream, but um, what what I find interesting is I'm looking at a chart here from CBRE, their Q1 of 2023. Um, it sh- shows purchaser purchaser profiling, so who is doing most of the purchasing of real estate in Canada in Q1 of this year, and by and large, and and this is a little bit of an outlier because of one specifically massive transaction, but it, it's um, foreign capital rises to record levels due to M&A activity to become the most active purchasing group in Q1 of this year. And um, pension funds, which are typically relatively large group, um, this is the smallest portion that they've had in, um, in, in real estate purchasing on the data set on this chart. So, you know, typically there looks like 10 to 20% of the total, um, volume of people buying real estate and in Q1 of this year they were they were just a fraction of that it looks like um and you're seeing a lot of that getting picked up by other groups um private equity shrinking as well uh private canadian investors kind of staying steady and then foreign investment and again this foreign investor was was the most active purchaser in Q1 mostly because this group from Singapore GIC bought an entire REIT. They bought Summit Industrial Income REIT. Um, and private uh, Canadian investors continue to demonate, demonstrate strong levels of activity as the second most active buyer group. But again, pension funds being the smallest in Q1 of this year. Um, remaining activity was was shared among those groups. So pension funds, institutional buyers, and private equity. Um, and, and I think the, the interesting part here is that you know, a lot of people care a lot about the office conversation, especially. And we know that the pension funds have a lot of exposure to to office, the office asset. And so I think we're going to talk a bit about that. We, you've done a lot of research. Um, I've done a bit of research. And um, and we've talked about this a bit on the show here, but not, not as exhaustively, especially when thinking about public and private markets. So um, do you want to maybe give me a little bit of your 
uh, your the info that you've put together, and then I'll chat a little bit about a couple of conversions and sure. and comparing different municipalities. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, I'll refer. So I, I looked at really interesting. I guess it was a Gallup, not necessarily. It was a mix of a yeah, I guess a survey. But just before that, I wanted to mention something for people that are not familiar with pension plans and how it works. So pension plan, and I'll talk about defined benefit pension plans. So the ones that provide people a promise that they'll give them retirement income when they retire. So these pension plan, the way they're valued, um, there's two ways to value them. So this is done by actuaries, obviously. It's based on various factors, including market conditions, uh, asset returns, future asset returns, uh, macroeconomic environment. So it's it's pretty set like it's a, a set of criteria that can definitely change over time. So there's those two types. There's going concern. So going concern is just looking at the value of the plan and seeing if it can meet its few current and future obligation if the plan would continue to operate indefinitely. So that's typically easier for plans to reach. Most plans uh, that are, you know, properly funded will have a surplus from that valuation. And then there's the other one, which is solvency or wind up valuation, which looks at the pension plan's asset as of a specific date and assumes that the plan is winding up, so closing out, and what the costs to pay all those promises that it's made to current and past employees, what it would cost. So purchasing, for example, annuities that would have the same kind of terms as the pension formula, what the cost would be, and typically that kind of valuation, um, it's not out of the ordinary to see pension plans underfunded, so under 100%. And the reason why I wanted to mention that is in the other episode, uh, so the first part of this, we talked about exposures of pension plan to commercial real estate and the fact that they seem to not be aligning the valuation with uh, publicly traded real estate, so REITs in other words. And if they do end up lowering the value of those properties, it could severely impact the valuation because it's not nothing, right? We were looking at it and I would say on average, it's probably around 15% of exposure to commercial real estate, not all in Canada, some US, some around the world. But if you start you know, writing down some of those value, um, it could create problems for pension plan in terms of having to inject new money into the pension plan because there's a funding uh, deficiency in place. Yeah. Awesome. Um, <laughs> it's, I mean, it, it, it's interesting to dive into the technicalities of, of how this whole world works. Cause I mean, we represent a lot of um, on, on our show, a lot of, I would say direct investors, but it, but it's fascinating that, you know, all of us have some sort of direct or indirect exposure to the real estate asset and to these larger real estate assets and why we should kind of care a little bit about what happens to this office universe and this office market in, in the Canadian space. Um, and I guess we're kind of, kind of dive into that a little bit as well in regards to sort of what is, what does the future of that look like? Because I know, you know, and we touched on this in part one of the episode on on your show, there's a lot of ominous headlines out there. We're hearing, you know, uh, companies that, that we don't think should be defaulting on loans, right? We hear, you know, you hear about your Black, <laughs> your Blackstone and your Brookfield and whoever, they're defaulting on loans and primarily on office buildings. And so the question becomes, is this something that we need to worry about here? And is this a sustained trend that's causing this? Is it is it just because of was it a geographic problem? Is it because this was all in LA? It would seem to be concentrated in LA and San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. So was it a was it an industry problem? Is this a tech problem? Is it uh, or is it a work from home problem? And I know you've done some some really good research on on sort of the what employers and employees want um, and, yeah. and what we can expect for work from home. Yeah, exactly. So I referenced there was a Gallup survey, really interesting. I can put it or we can put it in the show notes if people are looking to go through the whole thing. Um, but I think it provides some key insights. It was done in the US, but uh, just from my experience, obviously, I work in the pension world in my other job. And uh, our employer is a decent size employer, I would say like uh, probably medium large employer. Um, so I, you know, I have first kind of real world experience of what the you know, the senses from an employer and employees from that perspective. But this survey really gives some good insight. So here are some takeaways I think will be really useful for anyone considering 
investing potentially in office real estate. And, you know, before I get started, obviously right now, if you're investing in office real estate, you're definitely a contrarian, right? But if you're a contrarian, you know, those can be some of the most lucrative opportunities. But again, if you're wrong, it can go the other way as well. So, you know, some of the best bets we've seen in history are, you know, people investing in U.S. banks when they... you know, like Warren Buffett during the great financial crisis. Um, but having said that, the key takeaways, employers tend to want their employees to work the majority of the time in the office, three days or more a week. Collaborative work tends to be one of the most common reasons. Employees, on the other end, see the value in working in person, but would rather to do so three days or less a week. So you're starting to see, yes, there's they're pretty close, but on one hand, they want employees to be there as much as possible almost. On the other hand, it's more of a, you know, lesser is better. Um, Ideally as well, employees would prefer setting their own hybrid work schedule and the value of work-life balance that, you know, a hybrid schedule provides is also one of the big positives that employees see. And then I'm sure you you won't see this as a surprise because you live in the GTA, but, uh, you know, Ottawa is not as big a city, but it's getting, getting up there. I think we've passed over a million. And I've definitely noticed that where certain days of the week, uh, traffic is way worse. And the survey definitely supports that, that, the most common days for people to work, it's Tuesday through Thursday, and that Mondays and Fridays are typically pretty quiet in the in the office. So are you surprised with that data? Well, and and I'm actually going to touch on some of the data as well, because there's we only have the data for one city in Canada, which is Toronto. Unfortunately, I don't, don't mean to uh, prescribe Toronto as the center of the universe, but the data does apparently do that. Um, but you know, I was just in, in downtown Calgary last week for an event that we had shout out to all our Calgary listeners and um, and it seemed to be humming along despite, you know, 20 plus percent vacancy in the office space. Um, I think that, you know, we're just seeing a reconfiguration of um, of what the downtown core means. And Canadian cities actually have a little bit of an advantage in a global context in that respect, because we have already heavily densified our, our downtowns with residential um, with residential buildings, whereas a lot of these other financial cores have little to no residential buildings. And I'm talking other financial cores, mostly the US, um, where you have sort of like a very defined financial district and then other districts outside of that. Um, but in regards to traffic, which does show up in the, in the data, um, for, from SRRA, um, and we'll, I'll, I'll get to that after we talk a little bit about the, the labor economics here. Um, but, you know, it shows that people are doing what you're describing they want to, which is taking a three-day work week, uh, three-day in-office work week. So you're kind of Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then a long weekend, let's call it, or a, a work-from-home weekend. So you have very little traffic on Mondays and Fridays, um, peak traffic on Wednesdays, Tuesdays and Thursdays being kind of similarly bad. The challenge that comes from this, and and we can get to the to the economics of the labor side, you know, because I think that's the big driving factor. I don't think a lot of people acknowledge that, but I think record low unemployment probably has a degree of contribution to the bargaining position of, of employees. Um, but the, the challenge is you can't have a building that you own be only used three of seven days of, of its life. And, and that, that's a problem. And that's what we're starting to learn. And they're, they're, the, the consequences, solving for the consequences of that problem is what this whole discussion is about. Because even if we got to four days in the office and three days of the, the asset being unoccupied, it's still a gross underutilization of an asset class that I think people are really trying to figure out. And the question is like, can we... You know, can we co-use office space? What do we do with all the with all the remaining space? How do we re- reconfigure that remaining sp- space without collapsing the economy, etc.? But before we get into that, maybe we can talk a bit about where the labor market's at because you've done. I mean, you and I, I think have a, a similar position, um, and my and and I think monetary policy probably has the same position as us. I don't think it's their primary factor for wanting to see unemployment go up, but I I do think it's it's probably a consideration. I think it's a means to an end. I think it's just that, right? They they view, and I mean, you don't, you can just listen to Tiff McClain talk or one of his, uh, you know, um, 
lieutenants or if you listen to Powell and you watch the minutes, I mean, it's clear that the basically they, they know they have to slow down the economy in order to get inflation down. And if you're going to slow down the economy, you're going to get a higher unemployment rate. I mean, it's it's that's that's how they see it. I, I know you've been you've been saying that even more in the, maybe probably more direct terms than I am right now. Yeah. And well, I, I think that, you know, I think that the notion of a of a soft landing might be behind us at this point. I think that, you know, you're even and, and it, it is actually funny because the the lieutenant uh, or um was it Paul? Uh, anyway, yeah. yeah. Whoever was speaking in BC, I can't remember the guy's name. Yeah, it was but, um, Paul uh, Baudry, yeah. I think. Yeah. 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 He, you know, he basically came out and said hire for longer, which I think actually to me, this is funny because like it, talking about the contrarian concept here, it's like every time that they've said something, they were wrong. So I agree that they fully intend to be higher for longer. Like, you know, just like I agree that they fully intended for rates to be low when they said that they were going to be low for the foreseeable future. Um, whether or not that they can actually do that, like that to me means that they're going to be wrong again. We're going to see a hard landing and rates will actually have to come down as a result of that. I don't think that they can, like w- things are already breaking. So I don't think they can, sus- the economy can sustain a higher for longer environment based on it. But um, I-, I think if unemployment comes up and people are losing jobs, then employers have, are, are in the driver's seat again. And And I think you're, you know, as you get more into that, I think you get back to a, an environment where more and more people are going into the office to, you know, I mean, you're, you see these articles on LinkedIn from C-suite, you know, consultants and whatever it is, where it's like FaceTime at the, if people see you at the office, they're less likely to fire you. But most people aren't afraid of being fired yet um, it, for the most part, because the economy is just humming along, job market's tight, right? And And so I think as those dynamics change, it's almost a consumer sentiment thing. I think we will. I we could start. And I, and I, to be honest with you, I thought work from home, like I, I thought hybrid workplace, work from home was going to be the thing. Like, but I've seen a shift in my own thought process here, just based on the data. I never thought Toronto would break fifty percent footfall, fifty uh, percent of pre COVID footfall, and we're at forty nine percent right now in Toronto. So, so what does footfall mean? Because you know that spades better than I do, and I, I'm not familiar with that. Yeah. So they well they actually use this concept, or they use this. Um, I guess they call it occupancy, um, but occupancy in in a commercial real estate terms actually means people renting space. Um, but this uh, this website uh, SRRA, the Strategic Research Alliance for Toronto, it's basically City of Toronto Financial District BIA Business Improvement uh, Area, Bloor Yorkville BIA Waterfront, etc. A bunch of people who have data on who's going where. They put together this chart and uh, May. April and May both had 49% of pre-COVID occupancy. So if you use pre-COVID as your 100% of occupants or people in the office. Physically um, in the office. Yeah, basically. physically okay. in the office. So that's okay. what footfall is. Like, let's yeah. say people walking into the office is yeah. the footfall. Um, then we're at almost 50%. We're at 49%. And I would expect, actually, they should have an updated data point today. Um, I'll check when you're speaking, but... Um, but I would expect that we'll probably break fifty percent at some point, and I, and and to me that's meaningful. You know, it, it is distributed oddly over the week. Like you get to your Wednesdays, and Wednesdays are over sixty percent of people in the office. So you have this one day where you have this like big gathering and collaboration, um, and then you get you know people in the space. Like I was just at an event where I was doing a lot of research for this actually. Um, I think I'd mentioned to you, I was just like, you know, typing notes at this event, but some of these large office landlords are actually talking about how people working from home is not, um, not productive and that's inflationary. And I, like, I, I thought that was a really, really wild statement. But if, if, it, if there's, if there's the ability to quantify that work from home isn't productive, then it, it would hypothetically become inflationary. These are going to be further headwinds that we need to address as a society and that, that are outside of the scope of what monetary policy can do other than destroying the labor market. Yeah, I still I still hope you would have had your GoPro for that meeting so I could have streamed in as you were listening. Yeah, yeah, it would have been nice, actually. I think comparing Toronto to other cities, because, you know, we used in, in part one of this and, and I just mentioned a couple of these U.S. cities as kind of 
data points of, of where things are exceptionally bad, this is where it's kind of weird. And, and you don't want to, you don't, I guess you kind of hope that the data that we're gathering in Toronto, it could just be a data discrepancy, but the markets where they're really suffering, your San Francisco and Los Angeles and the US, San Francisco is at 44.5% of its pre-COVID occupancy. And Los Angeles is at 50.1% of its pre-COVID occupancy. And we're already seeing defaults happening in the office assets in those cities. And so to me, comparing Toronto to that, where it's basically in between those two data points at 49% of pre-COVID occupancy is a little bit ominous. Um, but similarly, you're not seeing the same thing happening in the New Yorks of the world and New York's at 50.5%. I guess there is a couple of headlines out of New York, but, but not as, not as concentrated as we're seeing in California. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to add something quick to it uh, just to, um, for the, you know, the unemployment. So we saw in May, Canada lost 17,000 jobs, whether that'll be revised at the employment data is notoriously, you know, revised multiple times at times. So it could end up being positive. We'll see. But the most recent one was that it was down and the vacancy rates in Canada as a whole. Um, Stats can only has the Q4 2022 out, but it was 855,000 as of Q4 versus over a million in Q2 of 2022. So it has been trending down. So just to add to what you were saying, I think we're starting to slowly see um, the dynamic shift uh, towards employers getting a bit more leverage now and potentially enforcing those, whether it's three or four days a week, whatever it is, uh, hybrid work weeks. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then I think, you know, you, you start to see as well at a national level, downtown um, versus suburban vacancy. Um, there's some some interesting evolutions there um, where you've almost saw the suburbanization of the workforce happen as a result of COVID. And, you know, a lot of key thinkers in this space are saying, well, we don't really expect all those people to move back to the city. Like, you know, that's not part of the way that they're modeling things out. Um, and so on a national level, you actually have lower vacancy in suburban office than you do in in um, in the downtown. So you have 18.4% downtown office vacancy, which is huge, by the way. That's the highest it's been since the early 2000s, I believe. And you have 18 point, sorry, 16.8% suburban office vacancy. Um, and there are some cities where like Toronto would be, I think, the only one where suburban is actually higher vacancy than downtown. Toronto kind of evolving as a bit of a an outlier. Actually, sorry, Toronto and Montreal both have um, downtown office vacancy is is lower than suburban. Um, but then you've got like you know Va- Vancouver, ten point four percent downtown office vacancy, and then six point two percent suburban uh, office vacancy. So pretty tight tight market in that respect. And so I think you're, these are very interesting evolutions of what's happening in the office space. And I think it, it it's one of those things where everybody wants to talk about it. Everybody, and, and we'll talk a little bit about conversion, adaptive reuse and stuff like that. But it's it's just such a fascinating dialogue. Like you and I have enjoyed talking about it, researching it. And I, and I think, and I mentioned this on, on your show in part one of this episode, I think we've really evolved into a, a real estate market and probably the same thing in, in equities where it's like a stock picker's market where, and that could vary based on geography. You could pick the the city that's going to outperform, but you could also pick the asset class that's going to outperform. And I think office is one of those areas, not to say that it will or won't outperform because I really haven't formulated my own investment thesis on this yet either. And I don't think I need to yet because I think we're going to see a bit of discounting over the next little bit. Um, But I think it's one of the ones that everybody wants to talk about. They want to talk about converting these to residential because we're in a housing crisis. They want to talk about their opinion on work from home because there's a, it's a, it seems to be a very divided discussion. Um, so I'm just curious to get your take on sort of like what I really respect your opinion and your insight and, uh, and your research. So what, what your thoughts are on how this whole thing plays out. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is I, I think a lot of people are incorrectly thinking about the hybrid work work, uh, work week. So we're talking about three days a week, right? So does it mean that an employer now, only needs 6%, uh, 60% of office real estate? Probably not, because like I mentioned earlier, most people and, you know, people who are, you know, commuting to work, you see it Tuesday to Thursday are the days that most people go in. So does it mean that you actually need 60% 
office space if your employees are going 60% of the time? Probably not because they're going to be overlapping the days they're going. So you're going to have to need sufficient space for that. I still think there's going to be downsizing in space, but maybe, you know, instead of going to 60%, they need 80%. So I think that's where there's still a little bit of unknown, but I think I've seen people almost assume that, you know, okay, it's two, three days a week, the employer, they need, you know, 40% less space. And I don't think it works like that. Like, do you kind of see, <laughs> share my view on that point? I guess the question becomes like, I, I do totally. And I think that, well, I think of anything, like if you're trying to get everybody in the office at the same time on one day a week, then you, you might actually need more space. But, but the, the challenge is, I think that that's now becoming less and less common, or maybe we're just going to need to see almost the asset class change in such a way that it can accommodate for, for things like that to happen. Um, and so you get this big theme of, of, in quotes, right sizing, right? So um, from the same CB report that I was reading, it says net absorption is on par with 2022 year end as tenants focus on right sizing. So more and more of these tenants are still making changes. There's still transactions happening because they're getting rid of a lot of space and still taking a smaller amount. And that that current quarter net absorption by market is, is actually a fascinating um chart to look at because it shows kind of where, I mean, everybody except for Montreal and London basically has negative net absorption. So Montreal saw 237,000 square feet absorbed. London, Ontario saw 40,000. And then Edmonton was basically, let's call it unchanged. Vancouver, negative 13,000. But then you go all the way to Ottawa and Toronto. And this is where it's very interesting. Ottawa saw negative 537,000 square feet of absorption in Toronto. Saw t- and, and Toronto's a bit of an outlier because there's a ton of office being built right now in the city, but negative 2.2 million square feet of, uh, of, of absorption. And so these trends are like, they're so big and, and scary that there, ha- you you know, either like like you're saying, like if you're investing in office today and you're being the contrary, and you could be getting deep discounts on on some of these these REITs, like you're mentioning, that are down fifty percent, or you could be making a huge mistake, but nobody really knows at this point. Like it's it's very much guesswork and and having an investment thesis, and I think it's one of those cool opportunities in the real estate market to make like headway and and do some research and watch data. I don't think we've ever actually been been presented with like a bet. Like I call it a bet because it's literally like it's a it's a flip of a coin which way the whole thing goes. And I just I find it fascinating. Yeah, I totally agree and I like what you mentioned for the net absorption rate and I think in in investing in general too, you can look at countless examples and the market tends to act like like that, right? Is you see either an oversupply of something or a constraint either way, but let's talk about oversupply, which I think we can pretty much say there is an oversupply right now of office real estate. And then you'll see the market kind of adjust and shift away from office real estate. How long that takes? I mean, well, I'm sure it'll be several years, but then there's always the pendulum that could go too much in the other direction. So under construction, under development in the office real estate for extended period of times, and then the demand kind of catch up. And then you have developers now that are kind of switching the other way where, you know, you have that pendulum that has to get back to the middle. And I don't know the time frame it, that, you know, that will take, but I think it will probably happen at some point in the next decade. Um, and I think you need a long-term horizon if you're looking at office real estate, especially for REITs. And full disclosure, I invested in allied property REITs, and I know for them, they're pausing in terms of they don't have any new investment projects. They're actually selling their data REIT portfolio, which uh, they probably will be getting a decent chunk and change on that and they're putting that on their debt they're trying to be fiscally responsible because they their portfolio is doing well you talked about the other episode they have like all pretty much class a real estate but they are also being prudent um and that's part of it is they're going to use the proceeds to actually pay down their debt to more manageable levels but the last thing i'll mention and not to do a 
too much of a segment on AI, but I think AI is a wild card in all of that because if AI really helps productivity and potentially, you know, some jobs go away, then, you know, if some jobs go away, you have less employees, therefore you may require less office real estate, even if you have a hybrid work week. So I think AI is definitely a wild card that uh, really hard to predict in the years to come, but it could impact negatively office real estate. I think another interesting thought experiment around it, like it's, it's, I'm glad you introduced that because it's, it's, it is a wild card. And, and I think that on the, on the way out as well, like if you look at, um, the, so rather than looking at absorption, if we just look at the national office inventory under construction, so millions of square feet, we're building basically as little office as we were in, 2017, which was a slow year, rate it was a bit of a rising rate environment then as well, much less pronounced than today. But to me, you know, if we see that number continue to trend down, which I would have fully expect it will, I don't th- think we're going to start seeing new office projects meaningfully being, you know, um, undertaken by developers. This frees up a lot of capital and labor to have a meaningful contribution to high rise development of and that to me could actually start seeing some some disinflation and construction costs which has been a huge preventer to the delivery of affordable housing against the housing crisis in Canada and so i actually think that like the 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 volume of of an, of um office construction is substantial enough that once these start com- completing and you start seeing the pipeline dry up for industrial um and we start seeing some of these larger construction companies shifting into the high-rise residential space, um, that could actually really, really free up a much-needed supply pipeline in in the housing side um, and, and bring us a bigger rebound when we get to a point where it's economical to deliver housing. Because right now we're seeing, and this is probably you know another element of the conversation of what the future of the downtown looks like, we're seeing low housing starts happening as well and low new development. And so we're going to have a bit of a supply glut or supply gap on the, on the, um, on the residential side in the fullness of time, um, which could further not jeopardize, but further challenge um, what happens with these downtown cores. I think um, I guess we chatted a little bit on the bank of Canada piece, like the higher for longer element. Um, Maybe we can chat a little bit about outside of the office piece I, actually, the only piece that I mentioned that I haven't mentioned that we that a lot of people want us to talk about is sort of the adaptive reuse of this. We talked a bit, you know, more about it on on your show, but really tough, really expensive to do. But if we do start seeing office assets suffering, um, you know, again, Calgary just had four more buildings go into adaptive reuse into residential space. Um, Toronto actually had this building um, that was named one of the mo- one of the world's most beautiful repurposed buildings. Um, the really interesting article on that. Um, everybody would know this building. It's like a floating, like wavy glass office building above a bunch of like Victorian era townhouses. Um, and, uh, there's a really, really interesting article about it, how it was one of the most, uh, seven, seven St. Thomas street in Toronto. And it was in architectural digest for, uh, one of the 11 most beautiful repurposed buildings. So the idea that, um, that this is difficult or, or, um, can't be impactful, um, is, is, is changing. Um, and I think that we will see a trend. I, I think a lot of people are saying, oh, it's completely impossible. It's easy to say that and be defeatist about it. But I think the as, long, as, as the economics improve, I think it'll become possible very, very quickly. And I think that that's a big trend to watch for. Because if we do have an oversupply, like you're mentioning, it, the logical place to put it in Canada against, I think our population is supposed to hit 40 million today, actually. <laughs> which is cool. Did you know, know that? I didn't know that. I mean, it yeah. sounds crazy. I remember yeah, when no. I was a kid, it's, uh, was probably in the low 20 millions and just, to to be close to 40 is just, it's just pretty yeah. wild. But well, I think it's supposed to be a hundred before we die, which is just wild. So, um, but, but anyway, I mean, how those long are, do so, you plan on living is the question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. I live pretty hard. That's for sure. So, um, I, I think that, you know, the next question is what are the other trends that are as big as that in, in real estate right now? We can chat a bit about that before we wrap up. So like the geopolitical la- landscape, industrial space, any other asset classes that you're, that you're seeing that are of interest to you from somebody who's an outsider in the real estate space, especially. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, definitely the geopolitical is really interesting. You mentioned onshoring, but there's also indirectly friendshoring, which is just the same concept as onshoring, but you're just, um, you're essentially bringing back industries that, uh, not in your countries, but in friendly countries or countries that align geopolitically. So, you know, the U.S. could be French showing certain factories to Canada because Canada aligns geopolitically or Western Europe. So same kind of concept uh, for those who may hear that term and are not quite sure. But it definitely industrial rates you've referenced in the last episode, and I think a little bit on this one, uh, vacancy rates remain extremely low. They have performed from a REIT perspective uh, very well. Um, I think they're probably behind data REITs. They're probably right up there because demand remains strong. And I remember because uh, I own a little bit of granite um, industrial REIT. And I remember seeing that uh, they recently that their rent increases were, were strong too. So I think there's probably going to be a lot of investments in that space. That's one I'm looking at. Uh, retail. Retail has a lot uh, of potential opportunities, I think. I, I mean, depending on where developers want to go with retail, potentially taking other malls, making them multi-use. I know tackling apartments, um, you know, next to those malls, revitalizing them as well. I know in the U.S. there's been a lot of malls that uh, were trying to do that even before the pandemic where... It was the death of retail. Everyone's going to buy everything online. And I think now with the pandemic that we're out, we saw these big increases in online sales, whether it's Amazon, Costco, Walmart. Think pick, pick and choose your retail company. But we're seeing a bit of pullback now. And I think depending on what people are looking to buy and depending on who they are, I think there's still people that will always want to go in person and some people will want to buy in person some things and not. So I think retail, there might be opportunities as well. Uh, but I think you have to be very selective, like some this class B or C retail, I think is probably going to be struggling. But those better malls should be uh, should be doing pretty well in the multi used to. Yeah, I think that that's, you know, like retail is one of the ones where there is a big dichotomy um, or contrast when you compare it to the U.S., like, you know, the lot we were seeing, and actually we have an episode coming up about this. We had a conversation with Rob Spanier, who was former, uh, one of the presidents in, at ULI, Urban Land Institute, when we went to their event. A lot of people know that we were going to their event. We talked to some individuals from ULI about this, but they did a panel on um, reimagining the mall. And I think it's like, to me, that it, um, retail is one where there is a, as big of a trend, as big of a, uh, of a bet or a investment thesis to be formed around some of your, your REITs, like your Rio cans, especially they have this whole department now, Rio can living and, um, run by, uh, a Calliope carcass who I, I've heard speak a number of times and the stuff that they're doing is just so brilliant. Um, and, you know, a lot, they own a lot of power centers as an example, but those are multi acre sites on major arterial roads in suburban markets that now are desperate for housing. And they're, they're prime high rise sites and prime high rise sites are worth, you know, uh, 50 to $90 per buildable square foot. So if these are million dollar, uh, their, their valuations just haven't been realized yet. And either they're flipping it to a developer or now realizing that development's not exceptionally hard and becoming, high-rise developers themselves, bringing in a partner, bringing in a builder and realizing the revenue through the sale of condos or maybe in the fullness of time pivoting to purpose-built rental ownership um, to me is a huge trend and a huge opportunity to be investing in in retail um, REITs if you're watching what they're doing with how they're, how they're reusing their existing um, square footage. The dirt that they own is far more valuable now than the revenue streams or the yields from those those retail um, establishments. Industrial, I mean, I think you covered it pretty well. The I think we are seeing a lot of that. And industrial and multifamily are both just wildly oversubscribed in Canadian real estate. Um, both sub 1% vacancy in most top Canadian markets, um, which I just, is nuts from my perspective. Um, and so I, I do think that you know the big one, the big guess is um, is what happens there. And and do those continue against the headwinds of um, increasing interest rates? And or do we start to see more development capital going into those? Um, again, like just such a fascinating time to be looking at the macro and the the future of Canadian real estate 
um, across all the different asset classes because I really do and, and global real estate. But I just, I think that the world is going to be completely different looking. This isn't like in the nineties when you saw a big correction and recession and you could say, Oh yeah, I mean, it's going to look, the world's going to look the same in 20 years or it's very similar in 20 years. And as long as I buy these things, you know, I'll, I'll do well. Cause I know what the trajectory looked like for the past 20 years. I think it's just completely unrecognizable. I think the components like AI, like you're mentioning, the conversion to housing, like I'm discussing here, um, e-commerce. And and the last thing I'll talk about in, in regards to the the mall is like the on the retail side is Dubai might be a decent example, actually. I mean, Canada's very climate limited. Like sometimes our downtowns can be challenging because it's cold. And what we're seeing is actually a lot of these enclosed malls almost becoming like downtown cores of suburban areas. So in Newmarket, as an example, you have Upper Canada Mall, which is owned by Omer's uh, Oxford. And um, there's a lot of high rise being developed around there and people will do their shopping in the malls and their food or their dining in the malls. And um, Square One in Mississauga, very similar thing, 37 residential towers going in around that building. Um, And I think that this is a theme to watch for in in many different Canadian cities. And the reason I made the comparison to, to Dubai is not only did they beat us in the tallest tower thing um, with this, you know, out, outperforming the CN tower, but they also uh, beat us on, on outperforming the West Edmonton mall in the largest shopping mall in the world. And, and they do this because in they're climate limited as well in the summer there, it's so hot that people don't want to shop outside. They don't want to walk around um, outdoor downtown cores. And so a lot of this, gathering places, a lot of these almost parks, um, recreation, social places, dining, um, are all done indoors. And that, that to me is a big theme that is worth continuing to think about for, for Canadian retail and the way that it plays into the the theme of density. Cause there's so much excess land around all of these malls that just gradually being converted into high rise living space. Yeah. And I guess just to double click on the macro front a little bit. So the feds were recording on June 16 and the fed raised, uh, actually kept the rates unchanged for what I think it was the first time in a year and a half or something. Yeah. They didn't raise. That was their first relief, which yeah, is interesting because but- <laughs> we, because we hiked. So exactly. But they made the point to say that they were plotting for two more rates, rate hikes this year. They were looking to make sure that assess the, uh, the banking. I think that was one of the big thing, the financial, uh, system to make sure. I think, uh, that nothing breaks. They didn't say that specifically, but just to make sure that everything is stable, but they are looking for two more rate hikes by the end of the year. And on the geopolitical front, I think it's um, it's important for people to understand what's happening. So we, you know, a lot of, I know you mentioned you would post it on TikTok sometimes where people would think like, oh, some realtors would say, oh, interest cuts are coming and, you know, it's inevitable it happened before the end of the year. And obviously some people got a reality check, but I think it's important to remember that we have different inflationary pressures right now than we've had over the past 20, 25 years where we had globalization happening and a lot of goods being produced in China, which had an opposite effect to inflation. So, you know, interest rates were going down, monetary policy was loosening up for the most part in the last two decades, but it was counterbalanced by cheaper goods coming from certain countries like China. But now we're seeing the opposite. We're we're starting to see kind of global trade blocks. And that means that, you know, we've talked about onshoring, friendshoring happening, but it also showed during COVID that our supply chains need to be more resilient. And if they need to be more resilient, it means they'll be less efficient. By, you know, if you're building in redundancy, it's going to be less efficient going forward. Um, So that's going to put some pressure, I think, on inflation and make the life of central banks extremely hard, at least in the short term, but I think more medium long term. Um, I'm not a macroeconomic expert, you know, I do enjoy reading it. And, you know, it's, I know it's hard to predict, I don't try to make any predictions, but there's a lot of different forces happening. And I think it will have an indirect or even direct in some cases impact on real estate. 
completely agree. Um, I mean, I'll just add a couple of things and then we can wrap up here. But like, I think it, it is fascinating when you talk about, you know, the employment piece as well, the, the risk of getting into a wage price spiral, onshoring of goods again can become inflationary, but also population growth can become inflationary. You have more and more subscription, more and more people consuming the same products, the same retail, the same, uh, restaurants and, and this, that's a state of excess demand and the Canadian economy growing at a million uh, or Canadian population growing at a million people last year. And a lot of that was backlogs, like regardless of, of the cynicism that I might attach to the data points, the population is still growing and we're growing almost at the rate of some of these African economies, right? That are the highest. These are, those are considered emerging markets. They're growing so quickly. We're seeing that rate of growth happening here in Canada. And so I've always felt that the next time we saw a, a, a big bump up in inflation, by the time we got there in Canada, we were in for basically like an inflationary decade. And, I, and it wouldn't surprise me if if we're in a sustained period of things continuing to cost a lot of money. And um, you, it, it's obviously acknowledged by the consumer. I I would I think it's worth thinking about it from an, when you're creating an investment thesis, what that looks like as a rate, range of or within the range of potential outcomes and and kind of factoring that into your decision-making process. Because yeah, if we have higher for longer, I mean, to me, the only way that you can really get inflation down very, very low is with a recession at this point. I just don't see. And so it's either it's either that or or sustained inflation and neither, neither are good. So, no, exactly. <laughs> so we're, it's a rock and a hard place right now. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there's just so many forces going on. I think the last thing I'll mention, at least on my end, is that I love what you said, I think, in the range of outcomes, whether you're investing in real estate or stocks, whatever it is, primarily, I think, you know, making sure you assign probabilities to different range of outcomes, and then you position your portfolio to be resilient in most of these outcomes. If you do that, I think you should do pretty well. Where people, I think, get into trouble is they try, they think they know what the outcome will be, and then they over you know, kind of plays their bets too heavily on that one probability. And if it doesn't happen, that's where a lot of people can get, um, lack of better words, completely wrecked. Yeah, totally agree. Don't get wrecked out there, folks. Check no. yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> Simone just gave you a great clinic on how to check yourself. Oh, so. you just okay. reminded me of a movie. Have you ever seen that movie, um, The Night Before? No, I like not. set Rogan. It's like a oh, Christmas movie. Yeah, yeah I did see yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. hilarious yeah, movie, actually. Yeah, he's. Uh, I mean, yes. Uh, don't listen to that with your kids because there's uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's profanity, drugs, and alcohol. But uh, there's a scene where you just reminded me of that, where Seth Rogan has had a few different things, and uh, one of his friends tells him exactly that. There you go, folks. You got it right there. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. We'll leave you with that. Samo, thank you so much for your contribution to this episode. I think our, our listeners are really going to enjoy it. For everyone listening, make sure you check out the Canadian Investor Podcast because they are doing exceptionally good stuff outside of real estate. And you have to do it anyway because you have to listen to part one of this episode. And uh, hopefully we'll do more of these in the future. I really enjoyed this two-parter. Um, yeah, it was fun. Yeah. yeah. And for those who are more like a student real estate, the part one at the beginning, Dan goes over some easier concepts. So feel free to just, you know, fast forward a little bit where we get into more of the data and talking about pension plans and things like that. Amazing. Thanks, Simone. Thanks for having me. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.